Well, hi everybody. I am joined with a distinguished guest um, and a very funny person too, uh, Charles Cologne. Looks aren't everything. Well, well, well looks aren't everything. We're, we're, we, we can't do anything about that. <laughs> but um, Charles Cologne, everybody. Oh, great to be here. Great to be in the beautiful realm of Beaver County. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, I th- I've known you for, I think, five, six years, I think, almost that yeah. long. Yeah. Um, maybe a little longer, give or take, but this is the first time I'm meeting you, and it's uh, been a great pleasure. We've had a wonderful experience and a nice lunch. Yeah, at the Maple Restaurant in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Yes. That's called Product Placement. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're not getting any money out of it, so it's <laughs> kind of lost there. But uh, What was that thing that we had, uh, that ice cream thing? That was really good. That well, was- it, it was just, it, it was a Pennsylvanian play on the Viennese Ice Cafe. Basically, uh, a scoop of vanilla ice cream uh, with a cup of coffee dumped on it and whipped cream on top of that. That was really good. That was really good. So you're about to give a talk on uh, Blessed Charles of Austria. We're, we're not going to necessarily uh, touch a lot on that. Don't want to give give all of it away. But um, I wanted to ask, what got you into being a monarchist and into the movement? And what do you think some of the challenges are? Well, gosh. Um, that's a very good question. Those are all three good questions, actually. Uh, the first, I suppose you could say that I wasn't brought up with anti-monarchical uh, prejudices. That is to say that my father was French-Canadian and uh, had a very great affection as a result for the House of Bourbon, Louis XIII having sent my uh, first ancestor to Quebec. Uh, he also, because of our Scots blood, he had a uh, great love of the Stuarts and the whole Jacobite thing. Uh, and I've very recently found out that as opposed to just being a multiple great-nephew of two of the dead at Culloden, my, uh, my own direct great-grandfather was a survivor of Culloden, uh, dying at uh, 107 years old in 1830 in Quebec. Oh, my. Yeah, it was a very strange story. Anyway, uh, so that was on that side, and my, uh, my mother, for various reasons, was a great devotee of the Habsburgs and the... Uh, the Romanovs, and uh, for that matter, her mother, uh, thanks to her mother, I was, uh, shall we say, as far as our revolution went, loyalist friendly, and uh, also cavalier friendly. So to put it all together, I just didn't have the anti-monarchical prejudices that the real American is supposed to be born with. I say that in quotations since uh, my father and uh, his uncles all fought for this country, and I myself served briefly in the National Guard. My brother uh, is just being, uh, although he's no monarchist, but he's just been promoted to Brigadier General in the National Guard. And whenever people say, oh, well, your views mean you're anti-American, if I can keep myself from saying something along the lines of stuff it, (laughs) um, I smile and ask when they joined up. So, uh, would you say that being a, a Republican, small r, or a monarchist, do you think being a monarchist is more natural, or being a Republican is more natural? Like, which one do you think humans are m- more inclined on a natural basis, or a spiritual basis, to be? Well, I mean, 
uh, and that goes back to the, the uh, in a sense, the first question. Uh, to human beings, qua human beings, monarchy is much more natural. Uh, that's why all of our fairy tales are kings and queens and princes and princesses and so forth. Um, it's in our DNA, really. Uh, now, mind you, if you're born in the United States, uh, you are propagandized from birth. And again, you know, inevitably people ask, well, you want to overthrow the republic? Who would you put as king here? <laughs> you see, it's just not that simple. The problem is not that we are a republic, but that we have done a very successful job of destroying so many monarchies overseas. And that wouldn't be so bad if we'd gotten something out of it. But time and again, it's blown up in our face. I mean, as uh, Nixon put it so politely, greasing the skids for the Shah of Iran has really been the gift that's kept on giving for us. Oh, I mean, what, what we've been in, uh, and I, we've been in Iran and Iraq for how many years now? Yep, and I mean, the forever war goes right back to this anti-monarchical twist of ours. Churchill, who uh, I'll be talking about this a little later, but Churchill, who was not what you could call a deep German apologist, uh, declared that it was Wilson's insistence on getting rid of the Habsburgs and Hohenzollerns that paved the way for Hitler. And yeah. that did us a lot of good, didn't it? Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean we're, we're still reaping the rewards of that, I think. And we will for a long time to come. Uh, but as, uh, as uh, what's his name? Oh, golly. Uh, the movie, you know, about... Uh, oh, life's like a bowl of chocolates. Oh, Forrest Gump. Thank you. Gosh. <laughs> as that great uh, political thinker, Forrest Gump, tells us, stupid is as stupid, stupid does. Yeah. And stu that really sums up our foreign policy in this area, historically, and down to the present. I mean, who can forget uh, Mr. Bush Jr.'s uh, personal representative going to the lawyer Jirga in Afghanistan on television, openly telling them that they were not going to restore King Zahir Shah. After that, how could that government be seen as anything but a puppet regime? I mean, how stupid are we? Don't answer that. <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> Don't answer that question. It's rhetorical. It's really rhetorical. I mean, it, it's just amazing. And, you know, our, our collusion with the overthrow of King Farouk in Egypt, that was one that really blew up nicely in our faces. Did uh, America have any involvement with uh, Ethiopia in the overthrow of that monarchy, or was that another republic that was in tangentially connected to America? Well, one thing you have to understand is that because of our success as a nation, historically, which, God forbid, may be coming to an end as we speak, but historically, we have been the best advertisement, in fact, the only advertisement for republicanism in the world, is we're the only really successful republic in the modern sense that's ever existed. What about France? They've had five. Uh, all the, yeah, they've had five, so it must be good. I repeat, <laughs> we're the only one that's been successful. Um, and we are the exception, alas, that prove the rule. But they keep trying to repeat our quote-unquote success. It's what I like to call cargo cult politics. I mean, if you remember, during World War II, uh, our planes would land in the South Sea Islands and they'd bring all kinds of goodies. Uh, I mean, it was to support the war effort. Mm -hmm. But as a, um, as a beneficial side effect, the locals got all kinds of stuff uh, in return for building the, the uh, landing strips at American direction. The war ends, the Americans don't come back. So the goodies are cut off. 
you know, the canned goods and all that stuff. So they developed a cult called the Cargo Cult, which believes that if you build an imitation World War II landing strip accurately enough, the planes will one day come back. Because of course they have no understanding of anything that went into their coming there in the first place. That's just it's sort of a tangential memory. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that their major deity is called John Frum, F-R-U-M. The reason is that the American flyers they would meet were all John from Alabama, John from New York, John from California. So <laughs> they, they, they crushed it together into John Frum. So these, like Ethiopia, like Australia today, or Canada, they, there's the idea a lot of their political people, oh, if we build a republic, we'd be strong country like U.S. too. <laughs> well, that's actually not how it works. We're, I can honestly say that the United States are a success or were a success because of their monarchical origins and because of their, their former moral consensus based upon their once Christian traditions. But we've, we've done all that in. Um, so there's a meme uh, this is at the height of the uh, Iraq war and all the any other war during the the Middle East um, it's a it's a fighter jet I believe and it says don't worry Iraq democracy's on its way or uh, this huge tank and it says 70 tons of democracy but it's 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 funny and true because democracy is never brought to the people but it is brought by a 70-ton tank. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, you know, people uh, ask me, are you against democracy? And my response is not at all, but uh, I'm not against the tooth fairy either. <laughs> uh, democracy in the sense that most people consider it is only really exists in places like the Massachusetts or the New England town meetings and so on, and a few other, you know, Swiss cantons and a few other small places. Um, in every other larger polity, you have the rulers and the ruled. What makes one society different from another is uh, the nature and beliefs of the rulership. That's what sets the tone. Uh, in the case of uh, Christian Catholic monarchy, in its classical sense, uh, the, the church gave authority and legitimacy. In that sense, was the state church. And the, uh, to the king, it belonged not the primacy of power necessarily, because power was very diffuse, but the primacy of authority. That is to say, not the ability to make things happen, power, but the right to say what ought to be done. A good king, in, under that setup, was like an orchestra leader. And with a bad king, you didn't get despotism. You got, you got anarchy. <laughs> you got civil war. With our system, it's the opposite. With us, we have a state church, an animating philosophy that's very difficult to identify. It seems to be making the transition from the former religion of the country that kind of deified the United States into this odd wokery, which is the flip side of American exceptionalism. We go from being the last best hope of mankind, the shining city on the hill of the American faith to being the most evil country that ever was, 
rooted in genocide be. and slavery, or ever will be. <laughs> but see, it's the same thing. It's like Calvinism and Unitarianism. It, it's just the flip side. Um, but with that, with with either one as your animating faith or state church, uh, you then have a situation where authority is diffuse among the electorate, and so basically inoperative, and power is concentrated. So one last thing to close out this interview. This might be a complicated question, but if you could try and give a few quick points, do you think do you think it would be more appropriate for a Christian, especially a Catholic, to be a monarchist or to be a Republican? Um, I mean, God is a monarchist by design. I mean, he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, not King of Prime Ministers or Presidents. Well, that's that's all quite true. Uh, and on one level, absolutely right. By the same token, however, Catholic monarchy didn't jump out of a duffel bag, you see, and it was not it was not built according to a prearranged plan other than heaven. In other words, it was not built according to a human plan. It seems to me that if this country is evangelized, if it becomes Catholic, its institutions will naturally and organically become what they ought to be. Now, I don't have an exact idea of, that, of what that would, would be. I mean, I wrote my book, Star Spangled Crown, uh, as kind of a uh, uh, adventure in what if But I highly doubt anything remotely like what I wrote in the book would ever come to pass. But what I, if we did, as Catholics, if we did work to convert our country to evangelize it, then, as I say, justice happened the first time in Europe. Organically, naturally, a Catholic, a truly Catholic, a truly holy state would emerge. But it's not something that could be done simply by fiat. I mean, it can be to a degree, as we see with the uh, in Rome with the Edict of Thessalonica and Theodosius the Great. But even that took centuries after of evangelization and so on, even if you've got the cooperation of the state, to bring about a truly Catholic state of affairs. Um, we do have to look at the long game. And of course, as with the apostles who began the long game, we have to start with our immediate surroundings. And that means our family and friends. It means our town, our county, province or state, country, etc. Um, there is no quick or easy fix. And, it, and sometimes, historically, God gives you the chance to do something quick. Sometimes, yeah, maybe we can slip a king in there, <laughs> I, uh, which is what happened in Star Spangled Crown. That's not how it wor works usually, but you never know. Well, thank you, Charles, for uh, being um, my guest, and it was a pleasure finally getting to meet you and have you here. So uh, thank you, and just uh, do you have any quick final words? Well, yeah, just that... Um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you speak of uh, becoming a monarchist and all that, because, of course, when I was young, there was no such thing in America. Right. And one of the things that, I don't know if I can say this easily or, or comprehensively, I find it on the one side gratifying and on the other side extremely disturbing that my views are no longer completely beyond the pale. <laughs> because that speaks to the failure of our system. And you've got to bear in mind that despite my many critiques of it, I am a product of it and a beneficiary of it. And watching it die 
has not been high on my book of pleasures. Indeed. And so I feel very much like a, uh, a citizen of the old Roman Republic. The order that I belong to may be flawed or even to some degree evil, but I mourn it's dying. Well, thank you, everybody, and that is it. Uh, remember, long may he reign. This is Julian signing off.